level up. Level up part four, final part of this, uh, of this series. If you were not here last week, very important to go pick up the CD. Uh, I, think, I think last week might have been you know, maybe the, the home run hit of the series. I think it was the one thing that you need and you need to know. And it's one of those things you want to keep because you want to come back and review those notes. Watch the, or listen to that CD again. That's something you're going to want to revisit time and time again. And so anyway, in this series, if you haven't been a part of us, we've been talking about the idea that God wants you to level up. God wants your life to elevate. God wants your life to go from point A to point B. And that point B is always in an upward trajectory. That that's just the way God, and when you read all the authors of the Bible, all of them continue with this idea. One of them speaks of prosperity. The other one speaks of success. The other one speaks of excelling in life. Jesus speaks of having a life and then having it more abundantly, meaning expanding and growing. And so we believe that God likes you. We believe that God loves you and wants your life on that upward trajectory. So the question is this. If God really wants your life on an upward trajectory, and you really want your life on an upward trajectory, then why isn't it always like that? Why isn't, why isn't it that those two things aren't always in harmony? It's because sometimes there's a disconnect in some of the things that we think about, some of the behaviors that we have, some of the paths that we get on in life. And so we've been kind of unearthing the idea of what is success? How do we find it? And today we will kind of go in a slightly new direction because what I want to do is target one specific area of life that when I talk to people, it's kind of a regular occurring theme. It's something that comes up in a bunch of counseling sessions. It comes up with a bunch of prayer times at the altar. It just is something that we all think about on a daily basis. So we're going to take everything that we've learned and talked about over the last few weeks and then just kind of dump it all onto one specific category of life. And that is this question, how do you level up in the arena of your finances? How do you level up with your money, with your possessions, with your stuff? And so if, if you're here today and, and, and you're one of those people who, who have like this kind of weird thing about talking about church and money, and you think, man, all the church does is talk about money and you haven't been to church in a long time, I want you to know you showed up on like the worst week. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, we don't talk about money every week here, but you showed up on the one week. So, so everything that you believed, I, apparently I'm confirming it today. And so, and I get it. I know that there's an uncomfortability when it comes to some people, and it's usually based on your past experience or based on your perceptions uh, of, of money. I know that, that there's a stigma attached sometimes, and, and sometimes it, it has this feeling that like the, the church is on a money grab or the church only wants your money. I'm going to show you a bunch of stuff today just to prove to you that actually that the key to you elevating and leveling up in your finances, that yeah, giving is a component, it's one component, but there's a lot of other things to it. So here's, here's what I want you to do for me this morning. I want you for the next 30 minutes just to give me the benefit of the doubt, just to hang with me and then make all your judgments at the end. To just kind of float with me, roll with me, and at the end, you decide, you figure out. And I, but here's what I'm going to promise you. I'm going to promise you that as you look at these things, that all these things are something that the Bible teaches, that they're laced throughout the whole text, kind of from, from Genesis to, to Revelation, from Job to Malachi, all the way in the middle. They're all laced in there. Because God has very, very specific things to say about how you think about and how you treat your money. You'd be surprised if you looked at the number of verses that talked about prayer, and then you looked at the number of verses that talked about faith, and then you found out that actually God has just as much to say about those subjects, and the same amount of scriptures, if not more, deal with how you think about your stuff and your possessions. So it's important to God, and, and here's why. It's because God wants you to elevate. And I know you want you to elevate. But if there's a disconnect, I'm going to hopefully bridge those two things together today, or at least hope, hopefully, helpfully do that for you a little bit today. So do me a favor, bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray as we begin. Dear God, we pray that you would speak to us today, the Holy Spirit, you'd be in our midst, that God, you would challenge us. God, for some of us, we need to rearrange our thoughts, we need to renew our mind. God, some of us need to change some habits or some practices, but God, we pray that you would speak today. That, God, you would lead us in a new direction, God, whatever that might be, so that we might be right in the middle of your plan and your purpose for our life, especially when it comes to how do we take care of the stuff that you have given us. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. And you all say, amen. So we're talking about finances today. I remember, um, I remember hearing the funniest story. It was, it was a story about these three little boys who were on the playground. And as they were on the playground, how many know little boys sometimes start to talk about their dads and they try to like one up each other and talk about how cool their dad is? 
And so one little boy, he, he gets together with these other kids and he, he throws out the first one. He goes, well, my dad's so awesome. He can throw some words down on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem. Somebody gives him 50 bucks for it. And another kid said, that's nothing. My dad, he can throw down some words on a piece of paper. They call it a song. And somebody will give him 100 bucks for it. And the third kid laughs at him. He said, you guys are all busted. He goes, my dad can throw down some, uh, some words on a piece of paper and call it a sermon. And it takes eight guys to collect all the money. So I, 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 I want to tell you today that I, I get the stigma. And normally whenever I talk about money, normally I say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. There is no second offering. I normally say that. Today, there actually is a second offering. And my sermon is not geared towards you giving more. There's no guilt trip involved with what I have to say today. What we're going to do at the end of service directly relates to a missions project that we've been talking about for weeks. So I do want to warn you, this is not a, 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 a kind of a, a bait and switch kind of a situation. You give as the Lord leads you to. This, that is totally separate. But here's what I want to show you today. Is that when you read the Bible, when I look at it, when I look at your life, when I look at my life and I look at all of Scripture, what I found is, is I believe that there are seven core principles. I think you could throw some more on there if you wanted to, but I think there are seven core principles that if you will begin to think about and live by these seven core principles, that you're going to see your life elevate in the area of your finances. Because some of us are naturally good at our finances. I, I don't know what kind of DNA strand that is. I'm not sure what kind of personality trait that is. But there are some people, y'all are automatically frugal. You're automatically good budgeters. You're automatically, you've got an Excel spreadsheet. You've got all these things laid out. Uh, how many of you would, would go ahead and say that? How many of you would go ahead and say, hey, I'm a natural saver. I, I like saving. How many of you are, not a lot of hands going up here. Not a lot of confidence in this room. Oh, now, now you're going. How many say I'm a spender? I love spending. Spending is fun. Spending is good. Yeah, a lot more hands go up. We're proud spenders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how many of you are natural, like, uh, planners and budgeters, and you think about spreadsheets, and you have an organized sock drawer. Yeah, you have, yeah. And so, so you, some people are naturally good at certain ideas. How many of you just, you know, and I don't want any hands raised on this one. How many of you like just naturally like, yeah, I, I enjoy giving. I, I like giving. When I see need or opportunity, I, I just like to give. And others of us, we would say, yeah, I cringe at the thought of giving. Like, like, I, like th- there's a chain attached to my wallet for a reason. And so, I, I don't. That's kind of gone out of style, hasn't it? But in your heart, there's an attachment to that thing. I, I don't like spending. And I know I had, um, I had two different parents that had very different views on money. Uh, I had the dad who was very frugal, incredibly good at budgeting, planning, saving, investing. And inside of that same household, I had a mom who didn't know what a budget was or have a plan of any thought and loved credit cards. There was Discover. There was MasterCard. There was Visa. There was uh, J.C. Penney's. Uh, is that still around? J.C. Penney's still around? So, <laughs> clearly not a shopper. And so, uh, so, so there's like a card for every place. How awesome is that? They make it so easy for you to shop for them. And that was kind of my mom's mentality. I had these two parents growing up underneath the same roof. And so I've seen, you know, you've seen the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad? I had Rich Mom, Broke Mom. Or was it Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yeah, I had Rich Mom, Broke Mom. You know what I mean? And so, so I've seen, and so after looking at life and looking at my parents and looking at decisions that I made, I, I, I can go back and review all the decisions that I made as a young man, and most of them were bad, and um, in, in the area of finances, things where I just didn't know, I didn't, I didn't have a clue, nobody had taught me this stuff. And so now there's these great organizations that come along and help teach you these things. We do a group here called Financial Peace University, and I, I promise to God if I could get you into any group, it would be that one. Because if I could get everything worked out in you financially where you're on, path, on, on, on the God's path for your finances, I promise it would make things in your marriage easier. It would help your kids. It would help your future. It would help your involvement. And I'm just telling you there's a trickle effect. And God has a lot to say about our stuff. Jesus makes one of these most bold statements when it comes to finances. He makes this statement and says this. He says that you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one and hate the other or love one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. Therefore, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Everybody say mammon. And mammon was like an old ancient Arabic word. It was, it was a word of the, the Middle East that basically meant riches and wealth. And actually it ties all the way back to like a deity, the God of wealth. And so, so he wasn't saying like, you know, 
you worship the God of money, but money becomes a God to you. And so the, the, the bold part of the statement is this, is that you would think that Jesus would say something radical like, hey, you can't serve God and the devil. We'd say those are, those are two seemingly opposing ideas, right? We, we, right? We, he didn't say you can't serve God and yourself, because sometimes those, those are opposing ideas too. He said you can't serve both God and riches, meaning that the, the thing that actually competes for your heart is wealth. Money, riches, and how will you go about looking in that? And so God, all throughout the scripture, is constantly challenging. I want to make sure that I have your heart, not anything else. And the number one competitor is your stuff, your possessions, your riches, your wealth. And so be, be on the lookout when you read the Bible that you will see these ideas, these principles. And so today I want to walk you through and hopefully encourage you and teach you seven core principles that I think if you begin to apply these principles to your life, you're going to elevate. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about this, that that one of the things in life that elevates you are the principles and standards that you live by. And I told you that principles are many times just blatantly put in Scripture. Sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes they're showcased in a story. But there are these principles that create standards in our life that when we live by or surrender to these principles, those principles just lift you up. When you make these changes to how you think about or how you treat your money or how you handle your money in a real practical way, these principles just elevate. But today, here we go, because i got seven of them. I can't take forever. Number one is this. The, the, the very first principle that I think is so important, especially if you are a Christ follower, is this. It's the principle. Everybody say God first. It, there's just something about the God first principle. Jesus said it like this. You've got to seek first the kingdom of God. When you go back into the Old Testament, you've got to go back and find these scriptures where Jesus had a, or not Jesus, but God had an emphasis on the first so he told the people of Israel, like, like, when you give an offering, I want the firstborn lamb. It, Solomon said it like this, when you bring your offering, you bring the first fruits. When he even talked about the tithe in general, it was the first fruits of all your harvest. And so this idea of first keeps coming up over and over and over. Here, here's the verse that Solomon that I was referring to. It says in Proverbs 3, 9, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Well, how do I do that? Well, you do that with the first. Everybody say first fruits. Yeah, that's a weird term, but like for them, it was that you remember there's an agricultural society. It meant the first, like the very first harvest. And here's why this is so challenging. It's because it actually requires a lot of faith to give the first, doesn't it? Think about this. You're a, you're a farmer, or you're a rancher, and all of a sudden the first crop comes in, and you got to give that portion to God with no certainty that the rest is going to come in or that the other crops are going to... Why? So that requires this incredible amount of faith. You give that first offering, the firstborn lamb, the firstborn... I don't know that there's going to be a secondborn God. I mean, so, but so when we honor God with the first, this is the supernatural principle, is that God honors what we give. That's really what unlocks the door. When we, when we think about our giving, for those of you who are Christ followers and, and believe in giving, believe in, believe in tithes and offerings, I'm telling you that there's a God-first element to what we're doing here. That we don't give God our leftovers and we don't give God our hand-me-downs. As a matter of fact, that's what Malachi really hammers the people of Israel about. The people of Israel had gotten so slack in how they gave that Malachi calls them out. And he says, why do you keep giving God your blind animals and your lame animals. Now that sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? Like, like for them, they didn't give the firstborn anymore. And so Malachi gets angry and calls them out. And he goes, no, no you keep giving them the leftover, the, the ugly one, the one with the cone coming out, the, the, the gimpy leg. You give that to God? He goes, no, 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 no. God is preeminent. Meaning God is first and above all. Now, I, I, this is what I know about you. You want God to be first in a lot of areas of your life. You want God to be first, you know, in your marriage, in your, in your, in your eternal salvation. That, that's a big one. Uh, you know, you want God to be first in your, in your health. You know, you want God there. You want God in all these areas of your life. And then when it comes to finances, do you notice that there's like a, there's like something that happens on the inside of us that just kind of resists because there's a little kid in the inside of us. And, 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 and you ever watch little kids when they play with other toys and a new kid's introduced to the group and a little kid's got their toy already? What do they say? Mine. We all have a little kid inside of us saying, that's mine. That's mine. You can't have it. And so we, we kind of grow up with this mentality. Sometimes my, my kid's here on the front row, and, and I've had this happen a number of times with him. The, the audacity of these children. They, they go to In-N-Out Burger. And you get a, you, we get four by fours, don't we? That's how we roll. We roll deep in the streets. 
And we get four by fours. And they're awesome. And uh, they're amazing. So I don't want to get into it, but we get the combo meal. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there with your burger and you're sitting there with your drink and you're sitting there with your fries. And then all of a sudden you go to get a fry because you're the dad. And so what do you do? You take one of your children's fries. Because that is good and right and holy. And then they got the they got the nerve to look at you and be like, "Don't take my fries; them are mine." Well, I'll slap you. So, and what you want to do is you want to teach them this cosmic principle. Principle is I'm bigger than you, and I bought this, and I gave it to you, and everything you have, including your life, is in my hands. And we, as adults, adhere to that as long as we are the ones in the God role. But then when the tables are turned, we're no longer big in the eyes of God. And then all of a sudden God says, actually, that first 10%, that's mine. You you crazy up in here? How dare you? How dare you think that that's yours? Whoa, 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 hold up, son. I gave you life. I brought you into this world. I'm doctor, I, like, I, I take you out. I gave you all that you have, and all I ask is for one fry. All I ask is for 10%. You got, so I'm telling you, there's this principle of God first in all of Scripture. That we don't honor God with the A10%. We certainly don't honor God with the last 10%. Actually, the Bible teaches that we honor God with the first 10%. Somebody asked this recently. They asked the question about David, uh, Cain and Abel in the Bible. They said, hey, what's that weird story in Genesis where Cain gives an offering and Abel gives an offering and God says, uh-uh, I don't like your offering. It ain't good enough. And it seems harsh. In Hebrews, the Bible kind of gives a little bit of description as to why that might have been. Hebrews says this, by faith. Everybody say, by faith. The faith issue. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. Notice it was by faith. By faith, he was commended as righteous. Meaning there's a connection between faith and righteousness, and there's a connection between how you give and your faith. And when God spoke well of his offering, and by faith Abel still speaks even though he's dead. And the the point was this, when you read the story in Genesis chapter 3, what you find is this. Is that the good offering was the first fruit. The Bible says that Abel brought the first. When it came to Cain, it said that, you know, after some time had passed. Then Cain brought an offering. They both gave, didn't they? What was the difference between the righteous offering or the better offering and the other one? It wasn't that they gave. It was that one decided to put God first because it requires faith to put God first. It doesn't require a lot of faith to put God at the end. And so just, I'm just telling you as a, as, as a Christ follower, and some of you this is new. Some of you like you're giving is foreign or percentage giving or putting God first in your finances new. And I'm telling you, I want you to consider this. I want you to just try and say, put, I'm, God, I'm going to put you to the test. And you said to do that. I'm going to begin to give and put you first in my finances. And I promise there's a supernatural principle at play here. It begins to unlock blessing in every other arena of your life. And it puts you kind of underneath uh, the, the position of God's blessing. That's principle number one, is that God is always first. Number two is this. Number two, the second principle I need to move quickly is the stewardship principle. This is a huge principle, and and, and I learned it as a young man the hard way. And many of you are still learning it the hard way or learned it the hard way like I did. And, And it's this, it's that, let me give you the biblical principle. All throughout the New Testament, whenever Jesus talks about money, he always uses the word steward. We don't use that word anymore. We use the word manager. And this is, in essence, what Jesus was saying, is that actually, just like the French fries, you, you, you didn't come up with anything, you don't own anything, and it's on lease. Did you know that, that when you die, somebody else is going to get all your stuff? You ever thought about that? That whole mind thing takes on a new outlook, doesn't it? It's going to be somebody else's soon. It's going to be in a garage sale. It's going to be a storage unit that somebody auctions on. You know, and so, so here's the principle. Nothing in this life is actually yours permanently, is it? I mean, like, you don't got a U-Haul attached to your hearse. You don't get to ship stuff up to heaven before you get there. You don't get to keep any of that stuff. All them knickknacks that you collect that you are insane about, you don't get to keep it. That couch with the plastic, you don't get to keep that. Use that thing. All the little things that you are so just white-knuckle, clinch, hold on, and say mine to, you don't get to keep any of them, do you? 
Why? Because you're the owner of nothing. And the manager of everything that you have in life. It's on lease. You got it for a little bit of time, don't you? Some shorter than others. We don't get to decide that even. But here's what we know is that God wants us to be a manager. And here's what I know about every good manager. A manager always gives an account. And so as a manager, let me, let me frame it in this terms. If you looked at the way that you handled your finances, and then all of a sudden you got to step back and look at how somebody managed those finances for you, would you fire you or would you keep you on staff? If you got back to say, hey, you get to, you get to take care of all the stuff, all the finances, all the budgeting, all the spending, you get to take care of that, you get to step back and you analyze the way that you do that, would you fire you? Like, are you a good manager? Because a manager can give an account. And so here's the principle that comes behind this is that every one of us needs to be on a budget. And this is so important because when we look at the next few principles, you're not going to be able to do the next few principles if you don't get this one. Like this is a big one. This is a hinge that the door begins to swing on. Meaning if you don't get this one, then the other are going to fall into place. If you don't know what all money is coming in and you don't know where it's going out and then you don't designate where you actually want it to go, that's the essence of budgeting right there. If you can't do that, then everything else is going to be a lot more difficult. But when you look at the fact that God is going to one day judge us all, and we are all going to give an account for what we did in this life, how will you be able to stand before God? Is that going to be an easy conversation to say, hey, God, here's all the stuff that you gave me. Here's the ability, the time, the talents, the energy. Here's the money that I made. And God asks you the question, well, what did you do with it? And you're going to be like, uh, I don't know. Because when we don't have an account of our money, how many know it just disappears, doesn't it? Like when we don't actually have a plan for where our money goes, it just disappears quickly. This is why we get to the end of the month and be like, well, it seems like you sure do spend a lot at the mall. You know, it sure does seem like you go hunting or golfing or fishing or whatever it is. You, you sure, it seems, it sure seems like. The reason why we say it sure seems like is because what? We don't know. Like, we should be able to look and be like, it don't seem like nothing. I know exactly where this goes and exactly where this goes, and this is where I have planned for my money to go. Because when I don't have a plan for where my money to go, my money disappears. My money gets lost. My money goes into, how many of you know, like, when you don't have a plan, it goes to dumb things that end up in a garage? And how many know, like, your stuff all has, like, a, um, it almost gets downgraded, doesn't it? Like, you ever have something, and when you first get something, it's awesome. And it's new. And so maybe it's like on the coffee table or it's on your nightstand. It's in, a, it's in a special place. And then eventually it gets downgraded to like a drawer. And then maybe from there it gets downgraded into a closet. And then from the closet it gets downgraded to where does it go next? The garage. How many of you cannot park in your own car or in your own garage right now? Yeah, yeah, okay. Just food for thought. You can't park in your own garage. Where would that stuff come from that stole your parking spot? Because you don't got a parking spot right now. You're out on the street. And so, now, from the garage, where do things go to die? Storage units. That's where you go back in and be like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot who even had this thing. You haven't seen it in ten years. It's at the back. Cobwebs are all over it. And then eventually you die and somebody sells your stuff. And that's the life cycle. It's a sad existence for your stuff, isn't it? And it's the stuff that doesn't matter because you don't have a budget and you don't have a plan. So you end up with stuff in your... How many have a junk drawer? You got that way. How many have junk in your closet? And then you got junk in your garage. And then now you got a storage unit full of junk that you're going to make your kids have to deal with at the end of your life. Don't do that to your kids. Okay. So this is the principle of stewardship that I manage things. And every manager, every good manager gives an account. Bad managers get what? They get fired. So principle number three is this. Let's keep moving. Principle number three, master debt or debt masters you. This is a huge principle throughout the scripture. Listen to the most obvious one about it. Proverbs chapter 22 says this. It says that the rich rules over the poor. That's true. You look at world history. That's just a truth. You might not like it, but it's a truth. The rich rule over the poor. And then this is the follow up. And the borrower is servant to the what? To the lender. So Solomon says, and again, you got to think, remember, Solomon was like a dad trying to teach his kid. And he was like, hey, listen to me. When you think about debt, realize that there is a 
kind of a master-slave relationship that when it comes to money and lending and debt. And I want you to know, Father and Son, I want you to know that I want you to see debt is bad. Debt is evil. Debt is a slave master. And, and, and you know, again, we're mostly, mostly referring to consumer debt. We're talking about things where we go out and spend money that we don't have to buy stuff that we really don't need to impress people that we really don't like anyway. And so when we live a life of trying to get more stuff just to make us happy, because here's, here's, right, here's the sad reality. When you look at especially consumer debt, now again, if tragedy happens, out of nowhere job loss happens, there, there, there's reasons why you might go into debt that aren't unrighteous. But when you look at like just... just Playing out consumer debt, which, by the way, the average household has a minimum of $15,000 worth of credit card debt right now in America. That's sad. The total, if you, if you do all the math and combine up the total amount of debt in our country, 2.43. You want to know what the number is? It's not billion. Trillion. So we, gotta, we have a debt issue, don't we? Like our nation has a debt issue. We as people have followed in that path and now personally Americans have a debt issue. And it's because we, we, we adopted a cultural mentality about stuff. And I told you there's a real evil place that all this is. Because if you really dig down debt and where it comes from, it's either rooted in greed or pride. That's where it's really rooted at. And this is the unhappy reality, the unhappy truth. Because greed says, I need it to be satisfied. You ever been there before? Like, oh, but I need those boots, or I need that thing, or I need that gun, or I need... I had a buddy of mine that bought like a $2,000 gun, and we still harass him to this day about it, but he got, he got itchy fingers and was like, I need that. For what? Who's invading? Why do you need that? I mean, like, I get self-defense. I'm down with that. You didn't need that. I don't, you're not defending yourself against... Canada's not invading? So... We get locked into like, I, but, I, but baby, I need this. Why? You need it to feel satisfied. That's what the root of greed is. The other one that it's rooted in is pride. Pride says, I need this to measure up. How many of us live in a house that we don't necessarily need to be living in and it's put us to the edge of our budget or over our budget or we drive something that we don't need to drive because it puts us to the edge or over the limit of our budget? And again, this goes back to the principle of stewardship. That when we are stewards of what God has given us, we don't think, oh, well, I need that, and I need that, and I'm going to get that, because that's really cool, and that's really fast, that's really big, that's really tiny, and I need the newest one. It just came out. That's so last year. You know, we, we, get, in, we, we get into these mentalities, and so we just push ourselves. Listen, this, this, is, this is probably what I would say is the most biblical definition or biblical way of looking at debt, and this is found in the book of Romans. The book of Romans says this, oh, I'm trying to get there, oh, no man, anything, Except to love him. That needs to be your mentality. I, I, I don't go into debt. I don't go into debt for things I don't need to impress other people. I don't go into it just to satisfy. Jesus can satisfy my soul. It needs stuff to satisfy me. What I want to do is live a life where I don't owe anybody anything but to love them. That's the only indebtedness that I want to be in. That as a Christ follower, I am indebted to love people. Good people, bad people, weird people, difficult people, all people. I love people and I'm indebted because of God's love towards me. I'm indebted to love other people and I'm perfectly okay with that. But I want to be indebted because Solomon said is that debt is, is like a slave master. And I don't want to be enslaved to anybody but Jesus. That, that's it. That's where I want to live my life. Let's go on. Uh, number three is this or number four is this. This is the principle. Everybody say margin is good. Not margarine. That's not, I don't think, good for your heart. I'm not sure about that. Margin's good, not margarine. Margin's good. Now, again, margin is the space. I don't know if you know this. Like, margin is the, there's a gap, right, between what I have and what I actually spend, and then there, there's a gap. Now, some of us have, you know, negative margin. We're, we're on the other side. Let me show you this principle in the Bible. This is what God taught his people as they began to start out as this brand new nation. As a brand new nation, he says, Israelites, I want you to do money my way. And so he instituted God first right out of the gate. The other thing is, is he begins to teach this idea of stewardship, just like I talk about. This is another one that God taught his people. And listen, it was, this, it was the coolest way that he taught them. He said this, and this is in Leviticus. When you reap the harvest of your land. So again, you got to think about what I'm taking in. This is my increase. You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for who? The poor and the stranger. Because I am the Lord, your God. So here's the deal. Have you ever been in a plane and you're flying over an area that's agricultural and you see the plots of land? You ever seen that? And they seem cut sometimes so cool. And you're like, that's so dope. How did they get that so straight? And those lines. Are... And so, so the people of Israel had the same thing. They're an agricultural society. And so they have fields to harvest, right? And so they would have a square. And this would be their field that they would plant everything in. And then God comes along and says this. When you are reaping your harvest and you're taking everything out of this thing, don't cut the corners. Leave the edges because I want you to have some to give to the poor to take care of people who cannot take care of themselves. And so everybody say this with me. Everybody say, I have a square, but I live in a circle. Say it one more time until you believe me. Everybody say, I have a square, but I live in a circle. That is the principle where margin comes from. Think about it. If you can't, if you're not cutting the corners, what does that mean? You're not taking everything in that you possibly can. You're leaving some for leftovers, right? I mean, the most simple walk away is this, is that we live beneath our means. We, we don't spend and max out everything that we possibly have in life. Because let's be honest, and like I said, sometimes we buy into a cultural view of money instead of a biblical view of money, and then we wonder why we're not elevating. Here's why. It's because many of us, we have a square... We live in a square, we max out everything in our square, and then we look into other people's square and be like, but I want some of that too, some of our, some of your square. Now, statistically, that is how Americans, by and large, because most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Most Americans live have a square, and they live in a square, they take everything from that square, and then they borrow from another person's square, whether that's Visa or MasterCard or the government, whatever it is, and they max everything out. And God said, this is not the way you live. I want you to live with margin, meaning live beneath your means. So again, start to create a picture. What if I lived a life? Because you can't can't do God first and really until you get on a budget. Because then you begin to dictate, this is where I want my money to go. You can't put God first until you get on that budget and then pull in the reins, right? Because some of you, the idea of giving 10% would kill you. You don't even have it in the budget. There's no room in the budget for that because you have these obligations, usually with debt attached to it, gaining anywhere if it's consumer debt, like, you know, we're talking 15, 20 percent, the, the, the juice is running. And so we, we, we got this lifestyle that is outside of God's ways. And so because of that, we can't elevate. We can't tithe because we live maxing out our borders. We're not on budget. We're not living beneath our means, and therefore we can't put God first. And so now you see why people are elevating. It's simply because we've abandoned some ancient principles. Now, here's what's going to blow your mind. If you go over to, let's say, Barnes & Noble, and you go into the finance section, and you start getting people's books, you go get guys on like Millionaires Next Door and Susie Ortberg this, all all, all these different people. You know what they're going to tell you? This stuff is not new. There shouldn't be, you know, bestsellers coming out today. This stuff is old school news. The, the basic principles of how we steward our money are ancient. And these people are recreating it and reinventing it and then repackaging it and selling it and making even more money off of you. So they're enhancing their square. And so this is why you, you can see two people in life. How am I doing on time? Am I okay? 11.08 if you're taking medicine. This is why, unfortunately, you'll see people that live like this. There, there's like people like, let's say you're living in, in, in this area and you, you make $50,000 a year and you think, man, I just don't have enough, but I've got this, I've got this, I've got this, but, but I live to my means, meaning I got a square, I'm, I'm taking all that square, maybe a little bit more. And then there's another guy and he makes a, a lot more money. He's just making, he makes 200 grand a year, but you know what he does? He got a bigger square, but he lives in it and he even takes from other people's square too. Now, You know what they both have in common? They're both broke. The difference is is that one of them just lives at a higher lifestyle. So they appear to be wealthier than you are. 
But the only reality is that they just max out their bigger square than you are. The, the, the goal in life is not to just get the biggest square and max out the biggest square. You can be incredibly successful with a smaller square if you'll do these things. And if you'll begin to do these things, it's going to set you up for really the, the, the next couple of principles coming up. Let, let's keep moving. Number, number five is this. Huge principle. This is an ancient Jewish principle that is time-tested and true. Everybody say knowledge is wealth. People think wealth is wealth. That's how most people think. People think, no, wealth is wealth. The smartest people, knowledge is wealth. To the Jewish people who, who today are, are by and large, based on the percentage of population that the Jewish people are, because they make up such a small percentage of, of the actual population, but they make up such a huge percentage of people that are in, in high areas of finances. They believe this. They believe knowledge is wealth. And the Jewish people are a great testament to this because how many times have they been kicked out of their land, put into slavery, uprooted, kicked out, tried to be annihilated, tried to be destroyed, threatened their lives all the time? And the difference is this, is that many times they've been having their land taken from them and their stuff been taken from them and they still produce wealth. Why is that? Because knowledge is wealth. Let, let, let me prove it to you. Most simple of terms. If I took a guy who really, really had a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding, and a lot of knowledge, especially in the area of finances and how to treat finances, if I took all of his money from him, do you know what he would go do? He'd go make more money. Why? Knowledge, understanding, wisdom, understanding how this whole dynamic works. Let's, let's do the reverse then. The lottery is proof of this. What if you took a person that was not wise, foolish, Dumb, not smart in the area of finances, didn't have knowledge and understanding of how money and finances work, and you gave them a lot of money. What are they going to do with that money? They're going to lose it all and have no ability to go make any more after the fact. So let me ask you a question. Is wealth wealth? Yeah, but let me show you what Solomon said. Don't, don't, don't take my word for it. Listen to this, Proverbs 3. Blessed are those who find wisdom and those who gain understanding. For she, she again being the, the metaphor of wisdom and understanding, she is more profitable than silver and she yields a better return than gold does. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire will compare to her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and those who will fast will be blessed. What does this all say? Knowledge as well. It's more important. And so this, even, listen, going back to the, like I said, the ways of the Jewish people from ancient times. If you look at the way the Jewish people, even to this day, spend money. They spend on average way less on cars than other Americans do or, or world population. And they spend way more on books. They also have a much, much higher uh, percentage of their population that go to college. What are they trying to do? They're trying to increase their knowledge base because if I increase my knowledge base, that gives me the ability to be better off financially because knowledge is wealth. And when you adopt these principles and these mentalities, I'm telling you, you're going to elevate. Let's keep going here. Number six is this. This is a principle of Scripture. Invest for the long term. There's a principle all throughout. Invest for the long term. Think about the long term. Plan ahead. The Bible says that the plans of the diligent make rich. So there needs to be a plan, meaning a future plan, for how you're going to do and think about and take care of money. Now, I, I think the Jewish people did this in two ways that it's kind of showcased. Uh, number one is this. Let me read for you one of them. The Bible says, and this is in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may return to revere the Lord your God always. Now, I, I, now if you read this like I read this, you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to give the tithe. Now you're telling me to eat the tithe. This seems confusing. Am I supposed to eat it or give it, God? Am I supposed to come to church with 10% or should I... I don't want to go eat money, but I could go I could buy some good food. How do I, how do I look at this? And, and, and there's, a, there's a little bit of, a, of a, a gap in the way that the Hebrew writing translated to the English writing. And you have to know Hebrew to kind of understand this. So like in the book of Malachi, when it says you've robbed me of tithes and offerings, the word tithes is plural. Everybody say tithes. Yeah. Now what does tithes mean? It means there's more than one, right? So the way the Hebrew writes is that they had more than one way to... So we took, 
three different Hebrew phrases or words, and we introduced them or, or, or translated them to the word tithe. They had three different words to it. So the way that the Jewish people were originally taught to tithe is different than the way that we do it today. But I think the way that we do it is it's still honoring to God. I don't think it's bad. What they would do is they had three different ways. The first one they would tithe is to the priest. The priest would get one-fortieth of all their increase, and that was to take care of the priest. The second tithe was to go to the actual church and the temple. That was 10%. That's kind of the way we think about it today. Then they had a third tithe. This is what we're talking about in this principle, like plan for the future. The third tithe is that they would take the next 10% and they would set it aside for themselves. And then every fourth time this would come around, that one would be dedicated to the poor. Does that make sense? So imagine this, like there's a basic principle that, that, that even like I teach my kid and, you know, it's, it's really, really easy to understand. So we call it 10, 10, 80, that we give 10% to the Lord, we give 10% to ourselves, and then we live off the 80. Now, let me ask you a question. How in the world could you possibly uh, give 10 and save 10? You would have to live beneath your means, wouldn't you? You'd have to live a life and build a life. And the easiest way to do this is from an early age. The younger you are, the easier this is. Can, can I get an amen for all the people that are like, good God, how would I pull that off? Listen, you've got to do it from the beginning. Or what you've got to do at this point in time is begin to pull back and make major cuts and sacrifices so that you can do this. But here's the deal, is they would cut the second 10% for themselves so that they could make pilgrimage and go worship God. So this was like a plan that they had. For us, I still think that principle holds true. What if you, and I can do the numbers for you if you want, what if you gave 10% and saved 10% and lived off of 80%? What would your life look like? Well, right now it might look somewhat sacrificial, but here's the deal. If you started doing this when you were only 20 years old and you just did some basic investments earning anywhere from kind of 5 to 7, 8% of interest, do you know that by the time you retired at the age of 55 or 60, you'd be a millionaire? Making not necessarily a huge amount of money. Making an honest wage according to our kind of day and culture. If you just did that from the time you were 20 until the time you retired at 55 or 60 years old or whenever you retired, anywhere in there is pretty good. I mean, you can go do the numbers. If you do a compound interest calculator, you'll figure out. So the idea of giving 10% and saving 10% living off of 80%, that you mean I could do that and then be a millionaire when I die? Yeah. And that's if you have, when I would say, a reasonable income. Now, if you make a lot of money, I mean, like, Obviously, with compound interest, the numbers just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I'm telling you that God wants you to think about your future, plan for the long term. This is the way God taught his people. Second way that this happens is this. Look, look at this scripture right here. The Bible says in Proverbs 13:22, it says that a good person, or the, another translation says a righteous man, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Now, let me ask you a question. What are children's children? Grandchildren. Now, how cool would it be? Let me put it in a different way. How cool would it be if when you were coming up that your grandparents said, hey, I want you to know that you don't have to buy your first car and go into debt and you don't have to get student loans and go into debt, that we've actually been planning on this and we've got money set aside and we want to set you up for success. And what if every generation did that for multiple generations in a row? What would you have at the end of that? You'd have a whole lot of success, wouldn't you? You'd have some people with some elevated lives and elevated knowledge and elevated finances. Why? Because they were thinking long term. So when God says, when I want you to think about your finances, I don't even want you to think about you. And now, and now here's the reality. Most of us in this room don't have grandchildren. I don't have grandkids. Not for a long time. Anyway. So... But when I think about my finances, what God says is this. When you think about your finances, why don't you think about it? Little Peyton Jr. starts rolling around. How do you want to set him up? How many of that is some long-term planning? I'm not thinking about me. I'm not thinking about living month to month or paycheck to paycheck. I'm actually building a plan and a life. I'm not even thinking about my kids. I'm thinking about my kids' kids. That's some long-term planning. And God says, that's the way I want you to begin to think about money. Now, again, go back to what we talked about, that there are principles and standards that you live by, and the principles will elevate your life. What if? What if? What if you begin to put, you say, you know what? I'm going to put everything on paper. I'm going to put everything on budget. I'm going to really start dialing in on how finances should be done God's way. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make sacrifices. We're going to make cuts. But our first plan is to put God first. Our second plan is to go ahead and we're going to get beneath our means. We're going to live on the principle of margin. We're going to get out of debt. That's going to be goal number one. We're going to start killing out and taking out all this debt so that then we can not only just set aside for God, but we're going to set aside for ourselves. 
so that we'll be able to go and do, so we'll be able to take care of our kids and even set up a future for our grandkids. And so we just start putting all this stuff together. And when you think like this and live like this and you teach this to your children, you perpetuate a blessing. And where does the blessing come from? Because most of us have a lottery mentality. This is another American dumb idea that we've come up with. We have an Amer- a lottery mentality when it comes to our finances. We are sitting around waiting to hit some um, kind of invisible jackpot, hoping that that will take care of and solve all of our problems. And if I hit that jackpot, wow, that would be such an incredible blessing. But here's the deal. That's not the type of blessing that God wants to give you. Because when you look at the Hebrew word for blessing, there's two words that we translated blessing. The word blessed means is that I'm doing well because of the life that I live. Because I've surrendered to the ways and the paths and the principles of God, now I put myself into a position where God is blessing all that I do. That's the type of blessing that God wants his people to be in. And yeah, there's moments where God does the the amazing and the supernatural and the out of nowhere, and we always want that, and that stuff is great. But I'll tell you what really I think pleases God is when we live a life surrendered to him where all of our ways and all of our paths are surrendered to him, and then he begins to bless because of what we have done by obeying him. Can I get a good gospel amen up in here? Because I feel like I'm preaching better than your amen in me right now. Number seven, lastly, we're done here. Invest for the really long term. So there's invest for the long term, but then there's invest for the, for the really long term. I'll tell you a story and we're going to be done. Jesus tells a parable. He's talking to these two brothers. They come to him. They're arguing about the inheritance and the family money and all that stuff. And so Jesus is, y'all are bugging me. Tell you a story. He says, There once was a man who had an incredible harvest. He said, The harvest came in, it was so rich and it was so good and it was so full. Which, by the way, where does a harvest like that really come from anyway? You got to have great earth, but you didn't build earth. And you got to have great sun, and you didn't make the sun come up. And you got to have rain, and you don't make it rain. So, like, a big harvest comes from God, right? big harvest comes in. And so he's looking at all of this stuff as Jesus tells the story. And the guy says to himself, hmm, what will I do with all of my stuff? Ding, 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 ding. I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my old barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. Or if he already had barns, then he already had something in the barn, right? He already had surplus, didn't he? He already had extra. He already had more than he needed. I'm just painting a picture, right? Because if he didn't have room to put it in his barns, that means his barns were already what? Just Again, we can track with me here. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build bigger barns. And then I will sit back on my wealth. I will eat, drink, and be merry. And life is going to be awesome. And then Jesus interrupts the story. He says, but you, O fool, you did not know that your life would be required of you. And yet you have not been rich. You were rich to yourself. But you have not been rich toward God. So there's investing for the long term. Like, I want you to have a barn. I want you to see that the point of the parable is not to have a, it's not don't have a barn. The guy already had a barn. The barn was already full. And God's happy with you investing for the long term and having for you so you can have and so that your grandkids can have. That's already a principle we've laid the foundation for. This parable was not a story to say, shouldn't save, you should give everything to God and the church. It was to say, once you have done what you've done. And if you've been living this way, you've already been putting God first anyhow. But once you get to here, at some point we need to be on, begin to think, what about the eternal? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He, he puts it really, really well. Talking about people with money. He says, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. How many know that all sounds like good stuff? Doesn't that sound like the stuff that you teach your kids so that when they go to the playground, they're not a jerk or a bully or the kids say in mine? They're like, no, be nice. Share. This is the way we teach our kids, right? So this isn't a stretch. This is what we want our kids to do. Now we examine our own life. Verse 19, in this way, they, the people that do good, are rich in good deeds, are generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for what? For the coming age. You know what the problem with the guy in Jesus' parable was? The problem was not that he didn't think about the future. It was that he didn't think about eternity. It wasn't that he didn't plan for the long term. It was that he didn't plan for the really long term. And God said, remember, 
everything that you do in this life matters. That what you do now affects what happens then in the future. Like the actions, the decisions, the attitudes, what you do. It it all matters. What you do now matters in eternity. We all have to give an account. We we, we were all... this is something we have to think about. Jesus said it in the other, in the very, very similar words, but slightly different way. He said, lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where there's no rust, no moth, no thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. Meaning heart follows treasure. Treasure doesn't follow heart. Do you have an eternal mindset to the way that you think about your stuff? So now I've said all that I've said. Now you can be the judge. But when I look at my life and I look at your life and I look at every life that I've ever counseled and I look at my parents' life and the two different paths and ways and when I look at the way the world is right now, I've got to be honest. God's ways seem brilliant. God's ways bring peace. God's ways bring that kind of blessing and prosperity that we all want. But it doesn't come freely. It's not, it's not a lottery and a jackpot. It's not, it's not that way. It's that we surrender our life to the paths and the principles and the ways of God. And as we surrender to God, we put ourselves into a position to be blessed. Because here's what I know about you. You want you to be blessed. Hey, I want you to be blessed. And that comes when we position ourselves for blessing underneath God's ways. So may you take these principles and lay, may the Holy Spirit lead you in where you need to go next. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, I pray that today something sticks that something maybe even gets inside of our soul and challenges something. Maybe it is about the way that we think about our money. Maybe we've got that white-knuckle grip and we're saying, mine. Maybe we just maybe we love God and we love Jesus and we like giving, but we don't have a budget, we don't have a clue where it's going or where it's been. And so, God, we pray that whatever it is, the Holy Spirit, you would lead us in what to do next so that we may be great stewards, not just good stewards, but we may be great stewards of all that you have given us, Lord God. May we always think you first in our heart, in our life, in how we live and how we think. God, we pray that you would help us to take this message out of these four walls. Let it be more than a good sermon or a good idea. Yeah, those are some nice principles. God, let this be principles that we surrender our life to so that we may live in your way. God, that is our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap for me this morning?